Oh, well, good morning again. So we are working our way through what's called the epistle to the Philippians. That is a letter that Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote to this church in the ancient city of Philippi. We'll be in Philippians chapter 3 this morning. It's found for you on page 10 in your order of worship. And then if you would like to turn there in, a, in your own Bible or the Bible in front of you there in the chair, the black Bible, it's found on page 922 in that Bible. And if you're here today and you don't have a Bible at home, would you please take that one with you as our gift? We'd love for you to have that. So as you're turning there, we kind of want to get us into the spirit of today's passage in kind of a ridiculous, ironical way by asking this question. If you're going to go eat at Chick-fil-A, not on a Sunday, um, do you have to first repent of being a Yankee or at least eschew your Yankee ways before you can go and enjoy, you know, southern chicken? Or are you allowed to go right to Chick-fil-A? They don't care. Well, having been in suburban Boston and be there, and we were there when they opened up like the first Chick-fil-A in the area, and we got to see all these Yankees like crowding Chick-fil-A six days a week, actually seven because they didn't know. Um, yeah, right? So I can tell you, you don't have to, but it's a ridiculous question, right? Of course. But this idea that you have to do this first before you can go here is a serious issue, and it's actually the background of our text today. So it's been a minute since we've been in Philippians because of Lent and Easter and all those things. Just kind of remind you, Paul writes to a church that is just riddled with relational issues. They are tearing each other apart. There's infighting, there's selfishness, there's conceit, there's self-centeredness, there's an utter lack of humility. And so what Paul does writing to this church that he planted, now it's about 10 years later and he's helping kind of give them some guidance. He's not there anymore. He's actually writing from prison. He's kind of helping them under, get out of this. And I love the fact that Paul comes to them and he doesn't say, stop that. He points them instead to Jesus. And he points to the humility of Jesus and says, you are in Jesus. And look what Jesus did. Jesus did not hold on to his rights, but gave him up. Jesus was not self-centered, but gave himself completely. Even humbled himself to death, he tells us at the end of chapter 2. And so in all these hard things that they have, all this selfishness, they can have Jesus empower them to live together in unity. Next, in a very surprising move, Paul then revealed his own anxiety and depression at the end of chapter 2. How much he is struggling with circumstances and he's in a dark place and he's dealing with sadness and anxious thoughts and they are too. And so he takes the gospel and kind of rubs it in to show how he is using the gospel to deal with his own depression, his own anxiety. And he commends the gospel to them as well as God has given you these gracious resources for when life Life is hard. And in those things, you can rejoice in what the Lord is doing. So it's this net positive example. Now he's got to kind of turn the page and give us a negative example of how what not to do. So he gives us, here's what you should do. Here's how you can avoid this now. So if you would, would you please look with me now on page 10 in your order of worship or in your own Bibles, Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. <clears throat> Finally, my brothers... Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. 
If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, as to the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now, this is God's word. Let's pray together. <clears throat> oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, as we come before your word today, we do pray that you would open this text up to us and us to it. Lord, would you show us our great need of your truth? Would you show us the truth about ourselves, about our sin, about our failures, about our selfishness? And then would you immediately show us the balm and healing that is the Lord Jesus Christ? pray that you would do this, Father, by your Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. So, where are we going to go today? It's kind of a weird text, especially to jump in after having not been there in a month. So I kind of want to give you a theme that we're going to orbit around today to try to understand this passage, and it's this. In the gospel, we rejoice in the prophets of Jesus and look out for the losses of performing. And we're going to see that Paul comes and he redundantly commands them to rejoice as a safeguard against the monstrous dogs, if you will, of legalism. So to understand this passage, i got to kind of step back and give you a real quick bit of background. For those of you who are in church world, you may have forgotten about these guys. For those of you who are guests, this might be a new term for you. The term is called Judaizers. And what happened was Paul comes and Paul starts planting these churches all around the Mediterranean basin, the Roman Empire, and he gets them set up. He helps establish leadership, and then he stays there for a couple years, and then he moves on. And so he's planting church after church after church. And what happens is these cats called the Judaizers started following Paul in a very Paul Harvey-esque way to come and tell them the rest of the story, okay? And what they would say was like, look, here's the deal, man. Yeah, Jesus, it's all Jesus. Absolutely, put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. But you realize he's the Jewish Messiah. You guys aren't Jewish. So if you're going to access Jesus, you've got to go to Judaism first, and then you get full access to Jesus. And so you need to embrace the covenantal reality of Judaism, and you need to start following the law. And guys, you need to get something cut off to show how serious you are. And so they go around and they get people to start be converting to Judaism. Christians start converting to Judaism. The men get circumcised, and then they think they can come to Jesus. And as ridiculous as it was for me to say, do you have to repent of being a Yankee to go to Chick-fil-A? It's just as ridiculous to say you got to go to Judaism first before you go to Jesus. You should receive that in your heart with just as much ridiculousness as you do the Chick-fil-A quip because it's utterly ridiculous. But these guys are everywhere and they form the background to most of the new testament is written to confront these guys in fact if you really want to get into this you can look at the book of galatians and it is paul basically just completely pulls aside politeness and just with fire in his pen writes after these people and basically says if you do this you're not a christian If you do this, it's not going to work. Jesus is worthless to you. And that's the issue. If you add something to Jesus, if you have to be circumcised to get access to grace, Paul says, you have no grace. You've ruined it. 
So Paul is finally going to jump into this issue now. He's been setting the groundwork, and now he jumps in. We're at the halfway point of this book, and so he starts out in chapter 3, verse 1, not with finally, but a better way to translate it is moreover, or to go on, or let's really dig into this. And he begins with the command. It's a thou shalt to rejoice. And he admits it's a redundant command. Philippians has been called the book of joy because Paul talks of joy so much in this book. And he's even given the command to rejoice several times already. I want you to see this. I put a slide together for you. He gave him a command uh, to rejoice in in chapter 1, verse 18, I believe. Yeah, rejoice in the proclamation of Christ. He gave him a command in chapter 2, verse 17, where Paul says, even if I'm going to die here in prison on death row, I'm going to rejoice. In the next verse, he says, and you should rejoice with me. And then later on, he says, I'm going to send your brother Epaphroditus back to you, not as a failure. He's coming home early because he was sick. You need to rejoice when you see him. And now here it is a mere two to three verses later and Paul says rejoice again. So Paul even apologizes. I love how he's like, he basically says, I know I've talked about this before, but I'm going to do it again because it's safe for you. And that makes me happy because Paul basically says, I am not concerned to be new, to be novel, to be hip, to be up on the latest things. He goes back to the same old things and says, rejoice, it's a safeguard. What a beautiful thought that it's in their hard times, in their persecution, in pressure, in illness, in disappointment. It's not, Paul says, be pure. Paul doesn't say, be more disciplined. Obey more robustly. Paul says, rejoice. That's the balm. That's where the journey to recovery starts, is to rejoice, to relish and enjoy your state of grace to Christians in turmoil. You see, the reason he does that is because the Judaizers attacked joy. Legalists, gospel deniers, always attack joy because they don't have it and they're suspicious of it. And it makes sense, right? If it's Jesus gets you 90% there, praise God, you got to do the other 10% on your own. So buck it up, good luck. Well, that's scary. That's not a foundation of security and peace and happiness and joy. That's fear and insecurity. So if you see somebody who has joy, they're too happy. Like, oh, they don't get it. They're not working hard enough. They're superficial. They're antinomian. They're flaky. They're a libertine. Whatever we say, you're too happy. Because in Christ, we're fully accepted by God, and then we're empowered to obey his law because we want to obey. And so walking a path of obedience, stumbling and falling, is a joy, and it's safe in Christ. You can be like, oop, messed up again, but I'm forgiven. Oh, I did pretty good today. You can do this evaluation and love God's law in Christ because you're secure. But if you're not secure in Christ, you're like, no, it's me plus Jesus, you don't do that journey. I had, a great, I, I had a great illustration given to me by uh, my predecessor who knows more about ministry than I probably ever will. It was great. So, so here's the deal. You've got like, here's you and here's God and the gap, it's like the Grand Canyon and you're walking across on a two before. And the Judaizers and the legalism have Jesus right in front of you and he says, okay, follow me. And he just starts going. And you're like, um, okay, right? And every fall is death. But grace comes in and fills it in. So you're only like this far off the ground. So you, you fall and stumble, like, oops, you get back on again. You're not dead. So you can follow Jesus in joy. And what Paul is saying is, look around. The Grand Canyon is full of grace. 
The Judaizers are trying to empty it. So have joy and you'll know you're in grace. Isn't that beautiful picture? I love that. And this shows us here that it's not just cultural pressure from the outside, that there's internal pressure from these false teachers. They have come into this church and they're causing all this angst and fear and stress because they've spread their manure of legalism all over the place and mushrooms of discontent are popping up all over the place. He's got to fix it. So Paul says, first thing you do, rejoice redundantly all over again, squared. His next command is, again, it's another thou shalt. So thou shalt rejoice. Next is beware of the dogs, like the yard sign. Look at me at verse two. Here's how he says it. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. See, false teachers always try to go after your joy. And so Paul, just like the yard sign, says, beware, look out of dogs. You know, sometimes Paul, this particular section of Paul in some Bible studies actually gets skipped because people are kind of offended at how harsh he is right here. But I kind of, I'm not sure if you're feeling that way, if you're looking at this, because it is kind of harsh, especially in a culture like ours that says, well, nothing is really that important. You know, there's no real truth, so you should never be offended if someone gets it wrong. And so just be nice. And if you're not nice, well, you are wrong, because be nice. And Paul is clearly not nice here. I want to remind you of a pastor named John Calvin from about 500 years ago. He has this beautiful quote about what's going on here. I found a comic for you that shows us better. So John Calvin said this, says, the pastor ought to have two voices, one for gathering the sheep. Look how pretty that is, right? Little, you see the little sheep licking him on the face? Isn't that cute? And the second one, and another voice for driving away wolves. And the next couple verses, we get to see Paul's wolf voice. There's fangs and there's biting and he is angry. So he says three things, three bewares. One, beware of dogs. Okay, this is a major insult to them. Or us calling someone a dog is like, well, I mean, I love my dog. I, I, I guess that's an insult. I don't know. But for them, it was an insult. It was vulgar and it was a religious slur of the day. The Jewish people were known to call Gentiles dogs. It's in their writing. It was very common. Gentiles, this Corinthian church full of Gentiles, excuse me, Corinthians, this Philippian church full of Gentiles had probably heard that slur given to them. Paul comes and he reverses their sales pitch, turns their slur around and says, no, you're the dogs. And what he means is that you're outside looking in. These Gentiles in Christ are God's favored people because Christ is his favored person. You uh, Judaizers, you're on the outside. You're the dogs. The next thing he calls me, he says, beware of the evildoers. Evil? I mean, really? Evil? We're going to call it evil? I mean, isn't that a bit extreme, Paul? Aren't you being a little dogmatic? But Paul says no, to add circumcision, to add this religious rite, to add this work, this thing you have to do to the work of Jesus is not better. It destroys the gospel, and so it's evil. To rob someone of their salvation and to rob someone of the joy of their salvation is evil. And so Paul calls a spade a spade and says, beware these evil doers. And then finally he says, beware of the mutilators. This is another cultural slur going backwards. So Jews called not Gentiles dogs. Pagan Gentiles called Jews back in the first century mutilators because of what the Jewish religion required the males to do. You, you had to cut something off. 
And that was utterly repugnant to them, so they called them mutilators. So here Paul comes and he grabs this pagan slur and he throws it right back and says, they're right. You are mutilators. You're evil and you're mutilating not just your body, you're mutilating the gospel. So what do we do with that? I seriously doubt someone sitting here today, you're like, I feel insecure in my salvation. I'm not sure if God really loves me. I know. I'm going to find a doctor and get circumcised this afternoon. That'll fix it. Right? Right? Okay. If you're thinking that, will you please come see me first? Okay. 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 That, but what do we do with this? Right? How do we appropriate this? Well, it's the principle behind it that Jesus isn't enough. And so I've got to do something. I've got to add to it. And there's a couple things that happens in church world where this is rampant. Here's one that I've experienced a lot. Maybe you have too. Where it's this idea that, oh, yes, you get in by grace. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Nothing of works. It's all of grace. Hallelujah. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And now that you're in the family, well, we better see some work. We better see some improvement. We better see some growth. See, this, it's not you've been empowered by God to obey, and now that you love him out of gratitude, you want to become more like Jesus. This is more very external. We better see some growth, or God doesn't like you anymore. I mean, you're in, but you're not the favored child. You're kind of like that kid over there, you know, that no one really likes. That's you. Or for people like us in our socioeconomic status, we tend to start thinking of God not as a great heavenly father, but the big HR director in the sky, right? And we get our evaluation every day. And every day it's needs improvement. And so we don't live under this thriving love. We live under this pressure, this burden. Like, yes, I'm in by grace, but I keep God's favor on me by works. Oh, if Paul were here and he heard that, he would say, dogs, no, go away, mutilators, evil, get out, repent of that. Maybe that's not it for you. Maybe it's something else. Whatever it is, think of something in the culture or some sort of behavior that you think is super important and that your Christianity has absolutely you know, given you an opinion on this. What happens is if it's something we're really passionate about or something that's scary, we can very often be like, well, you need to fix this first before you can really become a Christian. I mean, I, I know it's not quite right, but I mean, really, if you're not like, you know, this, I'm really uncomfortable, so I'm just going to make it think like, fix this, and then we'll talk about Jesus. Clean yourself up first, because I don't want to get dirty, and then we'll talk about Jesus. And it can be anything. I'll start naming issues, but you'll start throwing things, so I won't. But whatever it is that you care deeply about, that you're afraid of getting into the church, make sure you're not looking at that issue and saying that's a prerequisite of the gospel as opposed to a result of the gospel. That's Judaizing. Anything added to the work of Jesus destroys the gospel. And Paul next shows us why, starting in verse 3, where he says, for. He's explaining why. And basically, I'll give you the short version, because it's bad. So we owned a home that we bought in uh, summer-ish of 2006. You know where I'm going with this, if you know that date, right? Um, and then we tried to sell it a couple years later, and we did everything right, you know, like you're, like you're supposed to do. And all of a sudden, we found ourselves, because of other people, um, like upside down on a house, and that's just fun. That's super. You know, there's, there's people in your neighborhood right now who might be in that same situation if they bought in the last couple years. They call it underwater because it sounds better, right? But, you know, on, on, behind the scenes, you know, the accountants, they call that negative equity. 
Does that sound much more technical, much less scary? Oh, you have negative equity. Like, no, it hurts. It's not negative equity, okay? It's bad. I'm drowning here. And Paul says, look, people, that's all the Judaizers, that's all the religious performers have to offer you is negative equity. They're bringing you something that makes it look so good, but it's really, it's a cancer. It's negative in your life. It's going to put you underwater. And to make his case, he gives the ultimate counter to these Judaizers, these legalists. He says, we Christians, we are the circumcision. Hey, what in the world does that mean? Well, circumcision was the sign of the covenant. It was the sign of being God's favored people in the Old Testament. Jesus Christ has come and fulfilled that because he shed his blood. Blood no longer has to be shed, and it's no longer just given to males. Now it's open to everybody. So Paul will later say that baptism is now circumcision. So we just witnessed a New Testament circumcision, basically, right? A bloodless, for both genders, entrance into God's kingdom. But back that up, because that's of that reality, the Jewish people would refer to themselves as a group as we're the circumcision. It was a shorthand for we're God's favorite, you're not. We're us, you're them. And so Paul comes along and says, actually in Jesus, you're out. We in Jesus are the circumcision. We don't have to impress God. Jesus has already done that for us. We, for the boys and girls, we said we are God's true family. Boys and girls who are still here, isn't that a great way to think about it? Your, ver- your verse says we are, God, we are God's true family. I know you probably don't know what circumcision is, and you don't have to. You can ask your parents, but you can know this, that in Jesus, God looks at you and says, you're mine. You don't have to earn your way in. You don't have to impress him. He loves you in Jesus. So Paul says, we're the favored people. It's us. And he gives three proofs. He says, one, we worship by the Spirit. That's not just a, 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 an ask, a, a, a wish. That is Paul giving an objective proof. Paul says, we in Jesus have the Holy Spirit. We get to go right into God's very presence so we can worship by the Spirit in a way they never could in the Old Testament. We get to worship. We are the circumcision. The next thing he says is we boast in Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. You boast about what you like best, what grabs your heart What's on your iPhone lock screen right now? Do you want to be reminded of more than anything else? That's what you boast in. And Paul says, we don't boast in our works. We don't boast in our performance. We boast in Jesus Christ. And then he says, we put no confidence in our flesh. Or we could literally translate this, we don't entrust ourselves to our flesh. And Paul doesn't mean biology. Paul, by the word flesh, means this whole system of looking to yourself, your strength, and your resources to get you to God. Paul says, we don't trust in that because it removes this burden off of Jesus and puts it back on us. And this burden of our guilt and our sin before God crushes us. Paul says, we don't do that. We boast in Jesus. Why? Because if you look at this legalistic system, if you put yourself under the law, if you accept circumcision, Jesus Christ is worthless to you. Here's how Paul defines this negative equity. Look with me at verse 7. It says this, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ." Gain and loss there are actually financial terms. We could literally translate this, whatever profit I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Literally, Paul pulls out the P&L sheet of his life and says, look, I'll show you right here, 
right? All the things in verses 4 through 6 were in Saul, not Paul, Saul's prophet column. Okay, if you're a guest here today, huh? So there was this terrorist named Saul. He was commissioned by the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem in the early church to go and kill the Christians. He got Roman authority. He got their authority. He had the legal papers. He's on his horse heading out to do his first job, super excited. He meets Jesus literally on the way. Jesus knocks him off his horse and says, stop it. You're going to be mine now, and you're going to be my apostle. I'm going to use you to spread the gospel. He does. Paul changes his name because his life has changed. He's no longer Saul. He's Paul. And so now Paul is looking at Saul's P&L sheet going, look at all that stuff. Saul had that in his prophet column. But Paul encountered Jesus and realized, nope, that's all loss because of the prophet, the gain of Jesus. He is of supreme. And notice the things that Paul outlines as what he used to put his profit in, what he thought was so profitable. He had everything these Judaizers could want. He was like the king of the Judaizers. He was the poster child. He was the one they wanted to convert more than anything else. Here's how he describes himself. Let's look at the boys and girls version, okay, of their verses four through six. Here's how I put it for them. It says, if anyone could brag, it's me. I was baptized as a baby and from a family full of elders. I was in church every Sunday, memorized the catechism, always dressed up and made fun of those who didn't. I was captain church. See, if the Judaizers are right, Paul should boast in himself. He did everything they said they could do. If you allow me to be crass, you could not out-Jew Paul. He had it. He even claims he was righteous and blameless, not meaning like I, or I was, I was in, in favor with God, but all the lists that the Pharisees had, I, I, I nailed it. At my quarterly Pharisee reviews, I always got exceed expectations. I did it. I'm reminded of an anecdote from Martin Luther's life, the famous reformer who, who kind of rediscovered the gospel in the, right before the Renaissance and the Reformation. And uh, the English translation of it's really funny because they, they c- couldn't think of the right word to use. And so looking at his old life with this passage in mind, Martin Luther said, if anyone could get to God through his monkery, it was me. Because he was a monk, monkery, right? See, there's no English word that they could, they could use. So they just kind of said monkery. Paul says, I was the kind of guy everybody knows impresses God, except everybody's wrong about what impresses God. Oh, if you, if you are around someone in your life who you love who's used the word de-churched, or maybe you've used that word yourself, this is what they're leaving. They're, they haven't left the beautiful grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They have left a culture of pressure and performance, of judging and shaming, of seeking behavior conformity, not of resting in Jesus Christ alone. And you should flee from that junk. It's evil. It's a mutilation of Christianity. And someone needs to call the dog catcher on those people teaching it. Or another way to think about this, verse 4 through 6 are a product review under Amazon, right? You go you search in Amazon under Judaism, this thing pops up, you scroll down, and it's like zero stars. And Paul is like, I bought this thing, I unboxed it, I plugged it in, I followed the instructions, and it won't work. No matter what I do, it, does, it won't work. Don't buy. Zero stars. He wants you to get this. You know, we talked earlier, the little comic about Calvin said a pastor has two voices. A couple hundred years later, the Puritan seminary professor, um, Richard Baxter, says that a pastor has two jobs. 
He said a pastor had the two, two responsibilities of a pastor are one, they have to teach the world that they are under the law. And they have to teach the church that they are no longer under the law. Because what we do is we reverse those, right? Oh, God doesn't care. We're all God's children. He doesn't care about obedience. In the end, we all win. It's great. Anybody ever heard that out in the world, right? And in the church, oh, I got to make sure I get do it right. I got to make sure God still loves me. I got to make sure I'm obeying. I got to make sure I'm on the right track. And the pastor's job is to say, um, let's flip those, please. Y'all need some more guilt and y'all need some more freedom. Let's see how that works for you. Because we, we default to that, don't we? In church world, we default to performance. But you can't claw your way up to God. You can't. It's all worthless when you try because Jesus has done what nobody else could. There's no ritual. There's no practice. There's no fleshly involvement. He has bridged the gap to God for you and then he empowers you to follow him across that bridge he built and he wants you to walk obediently after him because you love him and you do it out of gratitude never to impress him or bypass him. The Judaizers wanted you to obey, to bypass Jesus, not to be like Jesus. All right, let's wrap this up. So why does he end it, or why does he begin it with the main command, rejoice? In the face of all this stuff, it's rejoice. He doesn't tell them to go get their Westminster Catechism and really study up. He doesn't hand them Calvin and say, okay, you need to understand the gospel. He says, you need to rejoice. Because only in Jesus Christ are we free from the law, secure in God's love. And from that place, we have joy because we're free. We're no longer slaves of sin. See, the accounting terminology shows how radically the resurrection of Jesus has reversed the way we think the world works. Every deposit Saul, the terrorist, thought he was making into his account, Paul, the Christian, realized all that stuff was actually a debit. It was a loss. And that same Paul who encountered Jesus would later remind us, again using financial terms in 2 Corinthians 8 9, he would say this. He would say, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Now see all the negative equity in your life. Look at it right now in your heart. All the works, all the religious performance that weighs you down, all the stuff that has left you upside down underwater, your heart impoverished. In the gospel, Jesus offers you the untold riches of his grace. Jesus counted all of his heavenly gain as a loss for us, Paul tells us. He gives us all his profit for free because of the great love that God has for us. In a culture that equates your worth with your wealth, and you know we do that, Jesus comes along and says, I'll trade you my wealth for your poverty so we can live together in my dad's mansion. That's the gospel. Now place your faith and trust in Jesus as the resurrected Lord. And you can have him as your prophet. Now let's pray together. Now, gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that you have spoken to us in financial terms because, Lord, even if we don't want to, our heart loves to think about money. 
to find its worth and value in, st- in wealth. So Lord, we thank you for showing us the beauty of your gospel in terms we could understand and, and, and resonate with. Lord, I pray for the Christians here today who, like me, have been subtly tempted to look to their own faithfulness as proof of your favor instead of looking to the faithfulness of Jesus. And I pray that you'll give us repentance and that we would once again place our full faith and trust in Jesus alone. And then we would be empowered to obey you in joy and gratitude from that place. Lord, I pray for those here today who do not know you. I pray, Father, if they have been pushed away by legalism, if they have been pushed away by people telling them to do this and perform and be better, I pray, Father, that even now you would open up hearts and ears that they would see the gospel and they would cling to it, that they would find their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. We pray, Father, that you would do that even now so that your kingdom would come and your will would be done in this place as it is in heaven. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' great name. Amen.